0: Last episode, in part one of Childbirth Across the Ages, we heard about goose hyena feet, birthing bricks and birthing amulets, stopping just short of the seventh century. Today, we're gonna pick up where we left off and find out the traditions and rituals surrounding childbirth from the medieval period onwards. I'm Natalie, this is Across the Ages. Technically, the medieval period lasted from the 5th century all the way up to the late 15th century, with everything before the year 1000 being referred to as the early medieval period. So we covered a bit of the early period last episode. I guess I'm a little bit late, but whatevs. Here we go. In the 12th century, the world met Saladin, who was an absolute baller sultan in Mesopotamia. If you like Who the Hell Is That?, there's a good You Are Dead To Me podcast episode about him, which I definitely recommend. Meanwhile, over in France, we have William of Conches, who was a French philosopher. He describes the uterus as containing moulds in the shape of foetuses, having seven cells impressed with human figures like a seal matrix, so a woman can bear up to seven children and no more at one birth. I had a quick look to see what the record is for how many babies born at once, and the record is octuplets, so obviously eight babies. But seven babies is not exactly the norm, so it's confusing to understand how he came to this conclusion as most mothers that he met might at most have had triplets, let alone seven. It's easy to laugh at people's suggestions on the inner workings of the body, but we have modern medicine, whereas a lot of the time they were just working with their own imagination, which is famously difficult to limit. Dissection was still rare in this period, as few people would be willing to have their deceased family members used as a cadaver. That's a good word, isn't it? Cadaver. The most likely source of bodies came from condemned criminals, and females were much less likely to be available. It certainly seems that William of Conscious didn't have access to a subject when he came to his conclusion. You're probably wondering why we're hearing from a bloke who clearly knows nothing about childbirth. As you're probably aware, the voices of women were not really recorded, especially not those of the lower classes. Throughout the medieval period, and indeed some would argue up until, well, now, women have been regarded as second-class citizens. Their lives were controlled by men right from the day of their birth spoken for by their dad until they became old enough to marry, then spoken for by their husbands. Women are innocent, delicate and incompetent. So why would a woman be trusted with writing something down for others to read, let alone something educational? A very strong tradition that still represents the idea of male guardianship is women being given away at their wedding by their dads and handed over to their husbands-to-be. The ultimate accessory in medieval England when pushing a tiny human out of your body was a birthing belt. I'd have preferred some kind of giant hat of impressiveness with one of those medieval drawings of a weird-looking owl on, but no, it was a birthing belt, or a birthing girdle. I'm going to stick with birthing belt, because what I didn't realise until now was that girdle is really quite hard to say over and over again, girdle, girdle, girdle. You know when you don't really think about words but when you say it a few times it sounds really weird. So yes, birthing belt, here we go. Birthing belts were made of many different materials ranging from silk, parchment, deer skin, snake skin, and even iron, and could be about three metres long. I was really surprised at this last one, because I think I'd rather have one made of scratchy, untreated wool than iron, which must have been painful to wear. Making one out of deerskin would have been simple enough, but you'd need at least two grass snake skins, depending on how wide they're expected to be. These birthing belts were worn while giving birth, shockingly. They were covered with prayers and religious symbols, which they hoped would protect her and the Beb. You might have seen a recent article about a birthing girdle from around 1500 featuring a study undertaken by Sarah Fideman et al. this year. They studied a birthing belt made of parchment. The inscription on the belt says If a woman travelling with child girds this measure about her womb she shall be delivered safely without peril and the child shall be christened and the mother purified. The belt also includes appeals for help from the Virgin Mary mentions 12 Christian apostles and the initials of Christ himself sort of covering all of the Christian bases, just in case one of them was busy with another prayer, I suppose. The belt essentially was wrapped around the abdomen, with particular spells being focused right over the belly, but it also being wrapped around the back. It's also possible that it came up between the legs and tucked back into the main belt so that it made a cross shape. But presumably, for the sake of practicality, it would have to be moved before the birth, otherwise the baby would be bumping its noggin on some parchment. The research team did chemical analysis of the belt and the results show evidence of use with honey, milk, eggs, beans and vaginal fluid found present on the parchment. The food-linked proteins were all ingredients recommended in medieval medical texts for treating women during labour or pregnancy. Vaginal fluid was on it because I assume that goes flying out of the vagina along with the baby, otherwise it's probably going to chafe a bit. It wasn't just your average woman that wore a birthing belt. In the run-up to the birth of her seventh child not had all at once despite what William of Conches might have you believe, Elizabeth of York, the Queen of Henry VII of England, paid a monk for bringing a girdle of the Virgin Mary to her. Sadly, this time the belt didn't manage to protect her and she died after the delivery in February 1503, as did her infant daughter. When Elizabeth of York's second and only surviving son took the throne, he became Henry VIII, probably one of the most famous monarchs of the age. When he wanted to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon so he could marry Anne Boleyn, the Pope was like, nah, cue the dissolution of the monasteries or the Reformation. Henry named himself the head of the Church of England and his entire country shifted from Catholicism to Protestantism. If you're wondering what the hell that has to do with childbirth, I'm getting there, I promise. Thomas Cromwell, who had loads of jobs during the time he served Henry VIII, was one of the strongest and most powerful blokes in charge of the Reformation, which happened in 1536. In short, his men smashed into all of the monasteries and abbeys across England, took all their stuff and sacked all of the nuns and monks. Obviously, I'm sure it was much more complicated than that, but in short, we have a nice little list of the stuff that they confiscated. The list of items seized included many items to help aid women in childbirth. One example was St Moodwing's staff, which was lent to women, to lean upon and to walk with it and to have great confidence in the same staff. Others included amulets, relics, talismans and the smoke of St Mary, or even her breast milk. I don't understand what the smoke of St Mary is actually supposed to be, but the really intriguing one is her breast milk. Presumably this would have by this point turned into a pretty tart yoghurt. Maybe it was even powdered milk at that point used for snorting. However, the most often mentioned item that a monastery lent out to its parishioners was a birthing belt, so it was obviously a common thing. Certain fossils were understood to ease the pain of childbirth, and a stone known as the eagle stone, which was usually a geode with another little stone inside it, which represented a tiny beb in a stone womb. The eagle stone was attached to the labouring women's thigh, since Christian, Jewish and Muslim traditions thought that it would help speed up the birth. Coral and ambular amulets were also used. Another learned text, compiled by the physician Aldo Brundino of Siena in the 13th century, advised that two or three weeks before the birth, the mother should bathe in water steeped with herbs and lubricate her legs, thighs and vagina with chamomile, oil and chicken fat. No doubt to ease the delivery. At least the goose from ancient Rome gets a break from this one, but it's bad news for that chicken. I feel like I've been talking about the medieval period for ages and I haven't even gotten to the birthing chamber. I'll go into a little bit more detail later in the Tudor period, but essentially, this was a darkened room with soft furnishings. The mother remained within the birthing chamber for four to six weeks for a period of confinement, which prevented her from hanging out with her mates, but also allowed her to rest and regain her strength. This was part of a cleansing process that reflected the belief that the mother's body was made impure by childbirth, much as women were understood to be contaminated during menstruation. Although sex within marriage was acceptable, just about... For the purposes of procreation, because it began with lust, which is a sinny, sin, sin, childbearing was a process that was always tainted. The umbilical cord had to be burned to get rid of the sins thought to be transmitted with conception. I could easily go off on a rant about this, but I'll refrain. What I will say though is what a load of old shit. The birthing chamber was, in many ways, an external recreation of the womb, its aim to ensure the safest transition for the child. The birthing chamber sounds quite nice, but I bet it got boring as fuck after about four hours. After a period of confinement, the mother was ritually accepted back into the parish church. She met the priest in the porch to be sprinkled with holy water, thank God, then made an offering and received mass. This rite was known as churching. Tudor time! During the Tudor era, which started when Henry VII defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, more than one in three women died during their childbearing years. In England, there was about a 1% chance of a woman dying during each of her pregnancies, and a 5-7% to 7% chance that she would die from pregnancy in her lifetime. About half of all pregnancies resulted in miscarriage, which is crazy high. Many women didn't even know that they were pregnant until the baby started wriggling around five months, which was referred to as the quickening. Pregnancy tests was not as easy as peeing on a stick and getting your hand covered in wee. So I've heard. Interesting side note though. Up until the 19th century, the quickening was believed to be the point at which the child received its soul. Whoosh! Baby soul. Another test was examining a needle left in the woman's urine to see if it rusted. I misread this at first and thought it said urinary and literally thought that they were walking around with a knee- needle up their wee hole. It wasn't as easy to note the lack of women's periods, because illness, poor diet, breastfeeding and excessive fasting for religious reasons might all be a factor in having irregular periods. Seeing as the Tudor period directly follows the medieval period, it's not surprising that they also had a birthing chamber. This was referred to as lying in, and followed the same process. Beforehand, she went to church to receive the blessing of a priest. No men were allowed in this private room, or rooms if she was super fancy and the pregnant woman was only allowed to be attended by other women. The rooms would be closed off and tapestries would be hung over the windows to block out as much light from the outside world as possible. Only a single window would have been left open to allow fresh air into the room, and only a small amount of light, as it was believed that too much light could damage the expectant mother's eyes. The room would have been hung with calming tapestries and images as to not upset the mother, we are very delicate after all, which could in turn harm the unborn child. Crucifixes and other religious items would have been kept within the room to provide spiritual support for the mother. Amulets, amber and birthing belts were also used, just like in the medieval period. Some mothers even clutched pieces of tin, cheese or butter which had charms engraved upon them. Personally, I would find a little nub of cheese very calming in this situation, and if you got a bit hangry, you've got a little snackle at hand. The midwife had to be a woman of good character. She had to take an oath swearing that she would not keep anything from the childbirth, such as the umbilical cord of placenta, which could possibly be used in witchcraft, which seems like a total waste because witches totally rule. Other women, sadly those of much lower class, may have had to work right up until they went into labour, as there was no one to cover their daily responsibilities. Poorer women too made preparations, with birthing sheets sometimes passed down through families from mother to daughter. The pain associated with labour and childbirth was thought to be due to Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden, much like my earlier statement, Boo to that. There are not many records of male midwives, but the Chamberlain family produced a long line of man midwives who invented the very first successful pair of forceps in the 1600s. They safely delivered many babies, but refused to share their design with other doctors. Their original pair was found in the floorboards of their old home in 1813, and soon everyone was copying their design. Let us leave Tudor England and head over to Central America in the 16th century. What was happening in the 16th century? Well, Guru Nanak begins the spreading of Sikhism, which is now the fifth largest religion in the world, and over in Germany, Peter Henlein invents the first portable watch. About time. (laughs) It's time to learn about the Aztecs. These cool guys lived in Central America from the 13th century, right up until the Spanish colonizers came in and dicked everyone over in 1519. Until then, what were the rituals surrounding childbirth? The Aztecs believed that babies came from the highest heaven. There were 13 levels altogether, and babies came from the 13th. You're going to have to bear with me in this section, because there's about half a dozen words that look like a nightmare to pronounce correctly, but I'm going to try my best. Feel free to mock me, though. Eclipses are cool as hell, right? Wrong. The Aztecs were not down with them, and they believed that these threatened pregnancy. They had these badass star goddesses, called the Titsimime which were the spirits of pregnant women, deceased gods, and royalty. They were depicted as skeletal figures wearing skirts covered in skull and crossbone designs, as well as skirts made of shells. One of these goddesses was called Koatilkwe. She presided over childbirth rites, and her shell skirt was a token of her role as a midwife. Prayed to by midwives as goddesses of fertility, the Titsimime were usually the good guys, but absolutely not when the sun was in eclipse. The darkness caused the goddesses to turn into monsters, and they actively searched out pregnant women and children to kill. Expectant women would often be hidden in grain bins to wait out the eclipse. Thankfully, eclipses are relatively short. Chalca Klukwe, which means she who wears a jade skirt, was the Aztec goddess of rivers, lakes and freshwater. She was also associated with infants and children. Naming rituals presided over by the goddess would wash away the parents' sinisinsins from their newborns. An Aztec midwife would stay in the woman's home for four to five days to prepare her for the birth. The Aztec woman would be thoroughly washed and popped into a steam bath located in the Te Mazcal, which is essentially a sauna with a low roof. I'm imagining being in a giant human soup pot. I don't know whether it was pool rules and she had to be washed before entering the bath or whether that was considered as part of the cleaning. The steamy bath would be fired with aromatic plants and smoke-free firewood. I want for this so bad, I'd almost be okay with pushing a baby out in 16th century Mesoamerica to get it. Aztec's skill with herbal medicine did much to reduce the trauma of pain and childbirth, and it sounds like the nicest way to give birth so far over these two episodes. After delivery, the midwife stayed on for four more days to monitor the mother's milk supply. The placenta was buried in different places depending on whether it was a boy or a girl. If the newborn was a boy, the umbilical cord was given to a warrior to bury in enemy territory. If the newborn baby was a girl, the umbilical cord was buried next to the fireplace to make her a good wife and mother. Down with gender roles! If the fetus was stillborn, the midwife took a stone knife called an itsli, cut the dead body up inside the mother and removed it in pieces. A grisly procedure that nevertheless saved the mother from death. The Aztec believed babies who died during labour travelled to a place called Chiquiquiúo, where a wet nurse tree would feed them with its milk. There they would remain until the gods sent them back to be born of another mother, and the cycle of birth and death turned once more. A horrible thing, followed by quite a nice sentiment. Maybe I don't want an Aztec birth after all. Ooh, we've got to the Victorian era. Birth causes great stretching of the parts, according to William Edmunds Horner, which he wrote in the Home Book of Health and Medicine in 1836. Pretend I'm a 43-year-old Victorian man. This occasions great soreness and easy feelings, which are best removed by bathing with warm milk and water. If there be much swelling, an emollient poultice of bread and milk or linseed meal may be applied and frequently renewed. If there be general uneasiness with heat and throbbing pain in the part, leeches may be necessary. He got 10 points for recommending vegetarian-friendly remedies, at last, but lost 15 points for suggesting a vaginal leech session. I felt a little bit sick after reading that, and considering the topics I've covered so far, that's quite an impressive feat. It was around this time when the use of medical leeches started to decline, so I wonder whether he had a stake in a leech farm or something. Medical issue, slap some leeches on it and shut up. Let's take a little gross fact break and hear about the groaning cake. Traditionally, this cake is baked by pregnant women as a form of distraction during early labour. It then serves as a nourishing post-delivery treat for the hungry and tired new mother, her midwife, and any visitors. It's particularly well known in the UK and Canada, and possibly originates in Cornwall. The tradition of a groaning cake at birth is an ancient one. Wives tales say that the scent of the groaning cake being baked in the house helps to ease the woman's pain. Some say if a mother breaks the eggs while she's aching, her labour won't last as long. Others say that if a family wants prosperity and fertility, the father must pass pieces of cake to friends and family the first time the mother and baby are churched after birth. So there were still churching women in the Victorian era, which is stupid and annoying. Children were often sent to stay with friends or family as birth approached, so that they would be spared the sound of their mother crying out in pain. Sometimes they would be unaware that another baby was even expected until they returned home again. Doctors were generally only called when births were prolonged and it was feared that the woman might die, but with doctors came infection. The doctors at the time had no understanding of infection and contagion passed on through unclean instruments. Women are very susceptible to infection during and immediately after the process of childbirth, and childbed fever was both common and unsurprisingly much feared in the 19th century. Because of this, hospitals were places of last resort, sought only by the very poor and the desperate the death rates in hospitals were known to be extremely high. Huge nutritional deficiencies such as vitamin D and calcium in the working class in the Victorian era sometimes caused rickets, which led to a contracted pelvis and made birth more difficult. The use of pain relief in childbirth increased only gradually towards the end of the century. Queen Victoria famously pioneered the use of chloroform for her eighth confinement in 1854, and this helped to popularise the practice, but many doctors still opposed its use. British clergy argued that this human intervention in the miracle of birth was a sin against the will of God. If God had wished labour to be painless, he would have created it so. Brilliant. Cheers, lads. It is said that pregnant women during the early 1900s were told that what you ate during pregnancy affected the personality of the baby. Women were told to avoid salty or sour foods, such as pickles, because these type of foods might give the baby a sour disposition. I don't care what it would cause. There's no way I'm going nine months without the blessing of a pickled egg. In her 1896 book, Preparation for Motherhood, author Elizabeth Scoville advises on the proper hairstyle for the delivery room. Now we're getting fancy. It's not as stupid and vain as it sounds, though. Many Victorian women had long-ass hair, and if left unbraided during their confinement, it could turn into a massive bird's nest of sadness. And I quote, Scoville says... Hair 40 inches long that had been untouched by comb or brush for three weeks had been disentangled, but it is a task that equals one of the labours of Hercules. I know that, life. Hold on to your pelvises, people, because shit's about to get real. You know what a chainsaw is. They're used to cut down trees. I myself am very familiar with them, as I have my chainsaw licence, believe it or not, and I'm officially allowed to go zip-zopping in the forest. With permission, obviously. Thankfully, the chainsaw we're about to mention is not quite the same. The prototype for modern chainsaws were invented in the late 18th century by Scottish doctors John Aitken and James Jeffrey. Thankfully, I suppose, the first saw was far smaller, sized like a regular kitchen knife, except with tiny teeth lined on a chain with a handle on each end. It was illustrated in Aitken's principle of midwifery in 1784. A few years later, a hand crank was added so it would rotate the hand-operated saw was created to widen a woman's pelvic bone during childbirth as an alternative to a c-section. It was risky and obviously a disgustingly painful procedure, especially before the invention of anaesthesia. Luckily, medical chainsaws fell out of favour by the end of the 19th century, and chainsaws began to be used to topple trees in the early 1900s. Christ, if I was offered that, I'd be like, nah, it's fine where it is, Yeah, cheers mate. In 1965, a patent was filed for a birthing apparatus which would spin pregnant women around as much as 7G until their baby was flung out from the centrifugal force. This uh, creative childbirth aid, patented by Charlotte and George Blonsky, required a woman to be strapped onto a rotating table and spun around until the baby shot out into a cotton net. <laughs> A nice little feature that was added was that it was specifically designed to concentrate as much puke as possible in and around the mother's face rather than having it flung outward towards hospital staff. Shockingly, it never caught on. I think that the lying in or confinement is something that disturbed me the most throughout this episode, aside from the chainsaw, obviously. Imagine how it must have felt to be told that performing... Perfectly normal and natural human functions makes you unclean and no one should be exposed to your gross sin. The practice was in effect for almost a thousand years, which is insane. Obviously, it wouldn't have been the case for most common folk who could not be spared from work. But Christ, one absolute faff. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it. To get a shout-out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes. Reviews really help the podcast grow, and more importantly, I like to hear people say nice things about me. Five-star reviews this week, here we go! Port Stewart Babe says, I think I'm now addicted to podcasts, and all because of this channel. I never got them before, but these just bring a whole topic to life. And I now know that dried hippo dung was used as a contraceptive device. I mean, we should all know that, shouldn't we? Really good fun. My dog walks are much more interesting too. Zachary Hutchinson says, informative, entertaining and well produced. Natalie does a fantastic job of delivering interesting slices of information from, you guessed it, across the ages. The show is very well produced, including some nice intro and transitional music. I find it very easy listening and look forward to future episodes. Thank you, as ever for your kind words, very lovely people. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore across the ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at across the ages pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic across the ages.